0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, the sounds of a city. How noise affects our health, even if we can't hear it. Plus, Band at the Ballpark, the new push to eliminate chewing tobacco from Major League Baseball. And what happens when parents spank their children? A new study links spanking to a range of negative outcomes. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, April 29th. I'm Amy Montemiro.
1: And I'm Noah Levitt. Amy, we begin this week with a story about noise. And we're going to talk about two kinds of noise, the kind you can hear and the kind that you can
0: feel. And the noise you can hear is pretty obvious. It surrounds us in everyday life. Some might be good, like birds chirping. But others might be less enjoyable, like a truck rumbling by your house. But beyond being
1: annoying, how does that noise affect our health? And that's the question Erica Walker is trying to answer. She's a doctoral student in the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard Chan School, and she says she's always been interested in noise.
2: When I was younger, my job was to find the little earthworms in the ground. Like, I could hear them moving around in the ground. So I've always had very acute hearing. Over the last few
1: years, Walker has put more than 3,000 miles on her bike, tracking to every neighborhood in Boston and recording audio at more than 400 sites.
0: Walker's recordings paint an audio picture of life in the city, with each neighborhood having a unique rhythm.
2: It starts about 3 o'clock in the morning. You start to get the hum of the highway. You start to get the pickup and delivery people. You start to get the the newspaper delivery people that throw these big, huge um, newspaper packs onto the doors or to the sidewalk. So, you know, it's really quiet, then it starts to kind of pick up. The airplanes start to to roar in, the trains start to run, the construction starts, and then it gets really loud. Each neighborhood has its distinct sound, like the north end, for example, you know, there's like a lot of, you hear a lot of restaurant-related noise of like people getting ready, you know, the, the, the restaurants have their doors open, you can hear them chopping food, you can hear them throwing out things.
0: A lot of what Erica is describing is the sound you can hear, cars and trucks, or door slamming. And these audible noises can have effects on our health, ranging from an increased heart rate while sleeping to feeling more annoyed.
1: And researchers have even studied links between this kind of noise and cardiovascular health. But Walker is also interested in another type of sound, a low-frequency type of noise called infrasound.
2: So natural infrasound would be the, the kind of sound or vibration that comes from earthquakes, volcanoes, thunder.
1: Infrasound is the noise we feel but may not always hear.
2: And in addition to the infrasound in nature, there's plenty of man-made noise. Man-made infrasound can range from like that hum in your HVAC system to the bus that passes by. This type of noise that you that just kind of reverberates in your in your chest feel it on your skin, like it's just the kind that you may not hear but you know, like, oh, I didn't hear that train moving underground, but I felt it.
0: Walker says that research in the military has shown that these types of vibrations can affect other organs in our body, such as our hearts.
1: And she's looking to take that work a step further in Boston. She'll use the data she's already gathered to predict noise levels all across Boston. Eventually linking that data with established health studies to see if any particular type of noise is linked to cardiovascular or mental health, for example.
0: There's also a more subjective component to this. Walker is interviewing people across Boston, trying to learn how residents feel about the noise in their neighborhoods.
1: For example, are there types of noise that are good, the type of noise that may make a neighborhood feel more like a community? And Walker is also interested in challenging the notion that we just have to accept noise in our lives.
2: I think we just kind of view noise as being the sacrifice that we have to make because we live in this technologically advanced society. So it's like the opportunity cost associated with being near everything being so technologically advanced so i think people just look at it as an opportunity cost
1: do people in a sense like become immune to the sound of like trucks rumbling by at 5 in the morning
2: i think people say that as a coping mechanism like i'm used to it by now but you know i i, I want to challenge that biologically like we have these noise ordinances in these cities that aren't really enforced you know so maybe enforce the laws that are on the on the on the records to and understand that people are suffering and that um, there are things that we can do to to alleviate some of that suffering.
1: If you want to read more about Erica's work and see a map charting noise levels in one of Boston's loudest neighborhoods, head to our website, hsph.me slash This Week in Health.
0: When Major League Baseball opened its season earlier this month, there were some pretty significant changes at some of the league's most popular ballparks.
1: Teams in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Chicago have all banned smokeless tobacco, often called chew, dip, or snuff. Health experts are handling this as a significant step forward. That includes Howard Koh, who is the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership at the Harvard Chan School. He says that while cigarette smoking has declined among teens, the use of smokeless tobacco has actually remained constant.
3: Tobacco in any way, shape, or form is hazardous to your health. We've known that for quite a while. But we're particularly concerned about smokeless tobacco because it causes oral cancer, esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, heart disease, mouth lesions, gum disease, among many other outcomes. We are very concerned about its use particularly in young adolescent boys. In fact, every day, close to a thousand young boys try smokeless tobacco for the first time.
1: Ko says those teens are often drawn to smokeless tobacco because they see it glamorized by professional athletes on TV and in person at ballparks.
0: In Boston, smokeless tobacco will be banned at Fenway Park where the Red Sox play and at all other parks and fields throughout the city. And the plan has had support from one of Boston's biggest sports stars.
3: We hope that uh, with this progress, young kids will no longer attend games or turn on the TV and see their idols modeling this addictive behavior. And in fact, David Ortiz himself has been pretty outspoken on this issue. He quit using smokeless tobacco, said it wasn't worth it. I think his exact quote is, an addiction is an addiction, and he didn't want to have any part of it. So if we are serious about public health and prevention, particularly for kids, uh, we respect leaders like. Big Poppy and the Red Sox and other leaders across the country who are taking on this issue.
0: By 2017, a third of Major League Baseball stadiums will be completely tobacco-free. Coe and other advocates are hoping to expand that to all MLB parks.
1: A large new study out this week is outlining the negative effects associated with
0: spanking researchers at the University of Texas and University of Michigan looked at more than 50 years worth of research involving 160,000 children. They found that the more children are spanked, the more likely they are to defy their parents and experience increased antisocial behavior, aggression, mental health problems, and cognitive difficulties.
1: The researchers did limit this study to spanking specifically, which is defined as using an open hand to hit a child on their buttocks or an extremity. And the researcher says that their work does not include actions that would be considered abusive. Now, it's estimated that 80% of parents worldwide spanked their children, and according to the study, spanking was not associated with more immediate or long-term compliance by children.
0: And there were some long-term effects of spanking. Adults who were spanked as children were also more likely to experience mental health problems and were more likely to support physical punishment for their own kids. A
1: recent report from the Centers for Disease Control urged steps ranging from public education campaigns to legislative action to reduce corporal punishment, such as spanking.
0: We're tracking some new developments in the Zika virus outbreak this week. In Canada, officials are reporting the first sexually transmitted case of the virus.
1: Meanwhile, in Europe, World Health Organization officials are warning of a, quote, marked increase in the virus this summer. Experts say warmer weather could expand the range of the mosquitoes that carry the virus.
0: And back in the U.S., lawmakers in Congress are still trying to iron out a deal that would provide more than a billion dollars in funding to combat Zika. Senate leaders say they're close to a deal, but the emergency funding bill is likely to face strong Republican opposition in the House. GOP leaders say they want more information about how that money will be spent, and they're also looking for an update on the development of a Zika vaccine.
1: This week, the WHO marked World Malaria Day by resolving to eliminate the disease from at least 35 countries by 2030.
0: The organization calls it an ambitious but achievable goal, pointing out that since 2000, malaria mortality rates have fallen by 60% worldwide and by 66% in Africa. Despite that progress, more than 3 billion people remain at risk for malaria, and last year there were 214 million new cases of the disease and more than 400,000 deaths.
1: So what will it take to eliminate malaria? We posed that question to Sarah Volkman, a principal research scientist in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School. She says that eliminating the disease is difficult because it's such a complex problem. One challenge is preventing people from getting bitten by mosquitoes. That means using things like bed nets or spraying to kill the mosquitoes. But then scientists also need to battle the malaria parasite itself.
4: The two main toolkits for the parasite are vaccines and drugs, and we have drugs that are available, but of course resistance and emergence of resistance uh, threatens to undermine the ability of these drugs to do their job. If you think about every time that someone gets malaria, if that parasite is resistant to the drugs that we have, then those drugs are essentially not effective. And we have vaccines in development. Um, At the moment, these are still in development, and although there's great hope for vaccines, at the moment, we really don't have in our toolkit something that's going to have like that sterilizing immunity which is sort of our ideal.
1: One of the vaccines that has garnered some optimism is called RTSS.
0: It's the first malaria vaccine candidate to win regulatory approval and has the support of the WHO but it also has limitations Recent clinical trials have found that the vaccine provided a modest immunity for older babies, but that protection appeared to wane over time.
1: Because there's no vaccine yet that can provide widespread immunity from malaria, scientists are also focused on combating drug resistance so that malaria treatments remain effective. One way to do that is by using combinations of drugs. Here's Volkman again.
4: We've actually found combinations of drugs that one form, one type of drug works on a sort of originally sensitive population, and it might confer resistance, but we have found partner drugs that actually then work on the resistant form. So combining strategies where they work in complement, so one works on the sensitive form and one works on the resistant form, you're basically putting pressure on a population to increase the parasites that survive to be susceptible to something completely novel and and either cycling them or using them in combinations, then the idea is that you can really offset or limit or prevent entirely the emergence of resistance, which would be a very novel thing and I think a real tremendous gain for how we could uh, treat malaria and also work towards elimination of malaria.
1: To learn more about how Volkman and other Harvard scientists are combating malaria, check out the university's Defeating Malaria Initiative. Just go to defeatingmalaria.harvard.edu.
0: Finally, in this episode, millennials have overtaken baby boomers as America's largest living generation.
1: That's according to a new analysis of census data by the Pew Research Center. And so full disclosure here, we're both technically millennials. Uh, Millennials are defined as anyone between the ages of 18 and 34 in the year 2015. And the baby boomers were defined as anyone who is between 51 and 69. But the gap was small about 75.4 million millennials compared to just under 75 million baby boomers. And experts attribute the change to a surge in young immigrants and a rise in deaths among baby boomers.
0: That's all for Harvard Chan this week in health. I'm Amy Montemiro.
1: And I'm Noah Levitt. And coming up on our next episode, do childhood cancer survivors return to normal health later in life? Well, a new study is showing us how the effects of cancer treatment can be felt for many years. And we'll talk to one of the scientists behind this new research. And if you want to catch up on any of our past episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.